Welcome to the Who Cares Podcast, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at Georgia Southern University. Welcome back to Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars. Today, uh, Ryan and I are pleased to bring to you Dr. Richard Cleveland. He teaches in the Counselor Education Program and conducts research really exploring how law enforcement officers experience stress, um, especially around um, deploying force. Now, this is you know especially pertinent right now, given our situations. But he also looks at how mindfulness-based uh, interventions might become a part of a stress inoculation training. Um, many people don't realize that officers in the military and in some police forces do go through this um, type of training. So, Richard, we're just going to open it up and um, tell us a little bit about how you sort of got into this idea, and we'll just take it from there. Thank you. Well, actually, um, I worked my undergrad as a uh, a campus officer, and so um, one of the terrible uh, memories I have was just um, responding to a situation and feeling like I froze for what felt like an eternity. And, and going back after the incident and looking at um, the review of everything, it was you know 20 seconds, and that is an eternity. And so that's always stuck with me. And then um, after uh, after school, going in and working as a professional school counselor in elementary schools and becoming friends with some of the uh, school resource officers that served all of our schools. And one of them telling me, I remember that uh, he was rotating off of SRO, school resource officer duty, and going back onto uh, street patrol. And I remember him saying how he had to change his mindset and change how he viewed the incidents that he'd be responding to um, so that he would be prepared because um, he, had, he had a different set of responses in terms of stress, in terms of handling situations. And so again, it kind of planted that seed and intrigued me. And then coming, uh, coming here to Southern, uh, ex expanding my writing, my research, my interest on mindfulness, and as a professional counselor working with clients uh, and using mindfulness-based interventions to deal with trauma, to deal with stress and when they're feeling overwhelmed. So all this is in the mix and um, and then uh, discussions with family members and friends in the military and hearing about a lot of the stress inoculation training that military operators participate in to prepare them for those high stress uh, incidents and especially high stress incidents when they are going to have to use force, they're gonna to have to deploy force. Um, and, and I was just very interested in that. and. Um, and then I remember thinking about, well, man, that sure sounds like uh, uh, a tiny glimpse of what I remember experiencing and wondering if this type of training and this type of research is so valuable um, and necessary for our military operators, what, how, how, how much more valuable for our law enforcement officers here? Um, now, and especially being in uh, Southeast Georgia, where we have a lot of challenges in terms of Yes, funding in rural areas for law enforcement. Uh, I just, I just really um, had a passion for that, and so uh, working with grant funding and uh, my initial research project, I partnered with um, an agency in the United States Pentagon, and we brought trainers here to uh, George Southern, and we partnered with multiple law enforcement agencies, and it was uh, really a two-part uh, intervention. So the first part was. Um, viewing it really as, um, I hate to say it this way, but providing a product, providing something meaningful for all participating agencies. And so 
when it was going out, it was me as a researcher saying, hey, I would really uh, like to have you participate in this research study. And you know what? Even if I don't find anything statistically significant, you will leave with this training. And that was important to me in the same way when we work in the schools. We want to have something tangible, something meaningful, that when they're done with this study, they will be able to uh, use it and, and have a meaningful difference in their work with students. So bringing that training in, and it, it was a combination of live fire training, practice exercises, and then stress inoculation training, where um, these officers were put through a lot of physical demands, a lot of stressful environments, the whole time while having to deploy force and still have target discrimination to make sure you know who you're um, delivering rounds to. Also, um, in terms of accuracy, you know, are you, uh, are you placing the rounds where they need to go to keep everyone safe? And so all of that is going on. And then for me, my part, really looking at, okay, so mindfulness. If mindfulness-based interventions have this proven record of being valuable for helping individuals with trauma, processing trauma, dealing with that. When we talk about um, the parts of the brain, um, I always joke with the, you know, closing your fist and showing our kids that, you know, this is your brain on the top part with your fingers coming over. That's your prefrontal cortex. And when you get so stressed out, you flip your lid and, and, and that is gone for that regulation. Again, representing the, the, the shift from our parasympathetic nervous systems to our sympathetic nervous systems taking over. And so if mindfulness can help me with that after the fact, I, I was really interested in what if I front load that? If I, if I start putting these pieces of mindfulness-based interventions in place, can that, yes, um, plant the seeds for down the road should um, that help with trauma be necessary? But also in that moment of high stress, of forced deployment, might that also help? And even just something as basic as when we talk about um, guided breathing uh, as one aspect, just one, but one aspect of mindfulness um, that can help bridge that gap back to our parasympathetic, back to that control, regulate our heartbeat, um, help us deal with oxygenating our brains that we, you know, tunnel vision isn't as overwhelming, but still, you know, making it relevant for the participants. So we're not going to call it guided breathing. We're going to call it combat breathing, you know, and so that way it's, it's relevant for the participants and it's focused on the skills they need. And so that's the short version of how I became interested in this and the first steps that we took. Okay. Wow. I, 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 it just opens up so many different questions for me. Um, you know, the last thing you were talking about is that, you know, guided breathing or combat breathing reminds me what my parents used to tell me of, you know, take five, just, just take five seconds and stop. Yep. Um, and, and in this particular situation, we're dealing with people who um, are, for lack of a better word, have a lot of machismo, mm -hmm. um, male and female, you know, they're, they're going in, they're the quote the law and and having them really take a time to ascertain the entire situation. Um, but I'm really curious a little bit more about we keep talking about mindfulness and using that word. And I think I understand what it is. But for our audience, can mm -hmm. you can you go into a little bit more detail about what that actually means? Sure. Sure. Um, John Kabat-Zinn um, uh, credited with so much of the creation and the work of the mindfulness based stress reduction. Um, and he um, uh, has a great work called Coming to Our Senses. And he's, uh, his definition is just most off-sided. Um, mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present moment. And we can also talk about um, Ellen Langer out of Harvard. And she was really taking mindfulness and the study of mindfulness in the direction of learning and education. 
And so she and so in addition to paying attention to the present moment on purpose for to generate this awareness, uh, Langer also talks about how that can be helpful in settings, educational settings, and she calls it novelty production or curiosity. That rather than and, and for both of them, rather than always being stuck in autopilot, that always being stuck in um, in having a response that I know or I should do. Having that pause, like you were mentioning, okay, take a break, pause, and becoming aware of what's going on, as well as all the possibilities around me. So, and I, I, I forgive me, I, I left out uh, on purpose, non-judgmental present moment awareness. And so that non-judgmental is not saying about right or wrong. That non-judgmental, another word that I like to use is attending. I always like to be careful saying his name. Um, the Buddhist monk, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. I believe I pronounced that correctly, has a beautiful image of, for mindfulness of a palace guard standing at the front doors. And as the flow of people come in and out of the palace, the guard remains stationary, but he is able to watch and direct his attention to everyone who comes. And he may, he may place his attention on one person and follow them through. He may place his attention on the whole crowd. He never changes his place. The crowd never moves him. And so in that same way for my awareness, it is in the present moment. It is on purpose. I, I am dedicating time. I am dedicating energies, cognitive energies, to this practice. Um, and that awareness that I am gaining, I'm not placing values on that. So, for example, um, as soon as I engage in mindfulness, whether it may be a walk, whether it may be a guided meditation, whether it may be just intentional deep breathing, as soon as I do that, Oftentimes, I'll get this onslaught of feelings, onslaught of thoughts. I'm like, oh, that's right. I got to pick up milk today. And oh, dang, I forgot to do this. And immediately, I can have all these judgments. Oh, I'm already screwing this up. And, and instead, of it's just suspending that and returning back, returning back to a centering breath. And, and so one of the immediate challenges, I, I believe, and, and we see this in literature dealing with operators, dealing with military, dealing with law enforcement, is, you know, in most of these situations, you can't just say to everyone, hey, time out, everybody. Maybe it's count five. My mommy told me this. And mindfulness scholars say it's, it's helpful. And so a lot of this is, is the, the physiological benefits. So with that um, centered, focused breathing, combat breathing, whatever we're going to call it, when I can engage in that, that physical process continues the oxygenation. And that physical process helps to mitigate the rise of my heartbeat. Again, I don't believe I can cheat biology. I don't believe I can cheat the takeover of the sympathetic nervous system, but that's gonna help to regulate, to mitigate it. And so that even in the midst of this stressful situation, I can't on purpose separate myself from the situation, but I can on purpose begin and engage in my breathing as I, as I go into the situation. This is really fascinating, Richard. Uh, what's, the, what's the ultimate goal with this research? What do you hope to achieve? In, in other words, you know, who cares? Yeah, great. So, my, you know, my, my initial goal uh, when do, with doing this uh, was really just to provide a service. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I actually, I remember, I remember being very nervous um, talking to um, the grant funders for this and saying this, but I just, I believed it. And I'm like, look, um, thank you very much. But and as I mentioned, you know, even if I don't get anything statistically significant, I'm looking at this as we will be successful if the participants walk away and say, wow, that was that was helpful. Thank you. And, and, and uh, 
you mentioned uh, you mentioned about the machismo and oh yeah i definitely see that and i'm reminded of how many plc's professional learning communities how many district in services i would go to and i could just see the same maybe we're not calling it machismo but my fellow educators sitting at a back table crossing their you know what this will never work i've been here for 15 years and that same reluctance and so I think about that because facilitating, whether it's a district-wide in-service, whether it's a school-based workshop, I believe, it's like, okay, I need to meet them where they're at, and I am only going to be as successful as I can on a relational basis because they are looking at the experience that I have or don't have. And so thinking about that and translating that to my work with law enforcement, because that same, prove it to me, you know, what have you done? You know what this is all about? I believe that same aspect is there. Um, and in, in my opinion, it's it's cranked to 11 because life and death can be on the line. Uh, so now your original question was who cares? And so that initial goal for me with this research was providing training so that these law enforcement officers, especially ones who may be on, they may be assigned duties where the chance of them needing to deploy force has a higher probability, wanting to give them that training. Because for me, I believe that prepares them all the more that protects them and it protects our community. When they are called upon in the situation to deploy force, and yes, lethal force, they have as many tools as possible for them. Now, a secondary, Kanye, you mentioned about the, the, the our, current, our current times and the, the relevance. You know, a, a, just to be honest, a second goal for me, having so many family members in military and law enforcement is just education. Um, I am surprised, even just the tiny glimpse um, that I had into that world and the subsequent glimpses through um, force on force training that I've been able to participate in, this research, um, live fire training, all of that. I, I fear so many people have no idea what stress can do. Um, whether it's that kind of a situation with uh, firearms and munitions, or even just the high stress um, of personal uh, aggression towards someone. Uh, I was reading an author, uh, Grossman, and talking about the number one phobia we all share is personalized in-your-face aggression and hostility. And thinking about, um, and, and so um, when I teach about crisis response, um, again, from the education side, for my master's students, oftentimes I will talk about, okay, this may sound silly, but have you ever done paintball? Have you ever gone rock climbing? When is something, I don't want to, I won't, I don't want to encourage you to take risks or be unsafe, but when is something where you have felt that adrenaline dump? When is a time or an activity when you have felt your heart just beating outside of your chest? And so preparing my students for those times when they might have to intervene as counselors in crisis situations. Again, if, if my students going into this field of uh, helping people in trauma, helping people in crisis, don't have that point of reference, then my second goal is what I want my community members to know that it's not just able, no matter how much I may talk about bravado or machismo, your words, Kanye, no matter how much I may talk that up, I am still human. I can't cheat that biology. And so when I'm in these high stress situations, all of us, whether whichever side of the situation you're on, we are all in experiencing this shift from parasympathetic to sympathetic. It's really interesting that you say that, Richard, because I had the privilege of going to our local police station's open house a couple of years ago, and they have this wonderful interactive um, 
active shooter sort of training arena um, where you are put in the position of being an officer. And I was doing this with another person and we were, we were faced with a situation where we had an armed combatant and it was he and I, and what are you going to do? And on one hand, he, he ended up shooting the person and I ended up letting the person go. So I think the community is, is it's easy to stand back and armchair quarterback, what should have, could have been done. Um, and I'm wondering if officers feel like, well, that's just one more thing you're putting on us to have to take care of. What about the them? And, you know, it is often seen in a situation like this of us and them, um, and, and you're trying to protect bodily harm. So is there um, any mechanism in place for sort of getting the world to think more mindful? You know, when I go out and I'm going to protest something, you know, do I want to be that instigator? Or, or as John Lewis said, do I want to do the good trouble? Mm-hmm. That type of thing. Well, and, and so I think about in the, in the literature, when we look at the most prominent voices talking about mindfulness is an intervention. Mindfulness is a tool. I think of mindfulness as being a way to lead me towards awareness and towards, um, I, I believe, hopefully a reflective practice, some level of contemplation. Now, again, this is a different road than we've been talking about with this research, because again, that time and place doesn't allow in the moment, hey, time out, everybody, I need to you know, get my yoga mat. And so uh, recognizing that there's a time and a place for both of these, but like anything, um, playing an instrument, playing a sport, these skills require practice, using a firearm requires practice. Mindfulness is no less demanding. I become more proficient. It becomes more natural and more meaningful with more practice. I think about that because as I practice mindfulness more, that skill becomes more natural and I am I am better able to get to that point of reflection, contemplation. Um, and then from there, a lot of the authors then talk about uh, compassion, kindness, that once I am able to, um, to get to that place of yes, physically, but also in terms of emotions, in terms of cognitions, coming to a place of awareness. Um, I might also use, I might use the word peace. And I mean, in terms of finding some balance, then I'm in a right mind to then extend that outwards. And you'll see that in a lot of the mindfulness literature, whether it's a guided meditation or just recommendations that, okay, now that you've worked on this awareness of your physical body, then let's go to the awareness of your thoughts. Let's go to the awareness of your feelings. Now, once you've done all of that, now let's start extending your awareness outwards towards others. So I say that because um, my hope would be that this awareness, again, just like that training, just like this education of this is what's going on, folks, is applicable to everyone. That again, if, and, and just to be perfectly frank, um, I think about a lot of the, uh, the protests that we are seeing right now. I have a graduate student who is very interested in this work. The student has also um, served in the military prior to graduate study and talked about recently being involved with some of the protests going on locally and feeling called to stand in the middle between law enforcement and the vocal protest. And for this graduate student, their placement there between these two very passionate, very stressful parties was what you said about your mom, take off. And that's how I view it, is that um, this student was choosing to provide that space that either side might not be able to engage in depending on their stress level. And so that student's physical presence, that student's um, intentional on purpose actions 
for me, is parallel to what mindfulness, I believe, what mindfulness can do for each of us on an individual. Yeah, I have the unique experience of having worked uh, in a police department setting as an intern uh, at the Lincoln, Nebraska Police Department in the Education and Personnel Unit, and what we were in charge of was training a new class of officers. One of the common statements throughout that uh, process from the training officers was uh, something to the effect of police work is 97% sheer boredom and 3% sheer terror. And you're dealing with that 3% sheer terror. Uh, but the but the fact remains that, that the threat of sheer terror is omnipresent. And I'm curious uh, the degree to which your work on mindfulness and, and uh, you know, the physiological reactions impact the day-to-day work of a police officer that, uh, you know, most, most police officers uh, go an entire career without ever drawing their weapon with the intent to use it. That's my hope, right? I mean, I mean, that, that is my hope. Um, and, and so I think about that, that 3%, as you mentioned, the weight of that 3%. And in my opinion, how sad due to, and we can look at all kinds of factors. You you probably know a lot more of the factors than I do, but I, I think of location, um, rurality, I think of limited budgets, how limited the training for that 3% is, um, not only during academy, but afterwards, how limited that training is compared to for the other 97% boredom. And so again, it's my hope that as as we're as I'm researching this, as as we're continuing, this again, this is not a panacea. This is not a magic cure that, you know what? If I can just get enough money to get yoga pants for every officer out, right? Okay, this is this is not that. That is mindfulness. One of one of the, the terms that was already present in the literature. Uh, before I even started doing all this, and Grossman writes about this, is situational awareness. And I, I'm sure when, when you were there, having the, uh, the training officers uh, talk about situational awareness and how the average person, I fear, walking on the streets has no idea about situational awareness, especially if they're looking at their phone. That's a whole other podcast. Okay, But for those officers, are you preparing yourself? Are you engaging in situational awareness during the 97% so that when the 3% kicks in, you already have that in play. I believe that's valuable and that's necessary. I think mindfulness can be similar. Okay? This isn't going to be a cure-all. But hey, you know, if you can engage in these practices of intentional breathing, intentional awareness, non-judgmental responses to um, the stimuli. And again, I'm not saying non-judgmental like, oh, I don't care what the law says or what the community code says. I don't mean that. I mean in terms of not getting into autopilot, which can be so challenging, again, once the sympathetic kicks in. I, I believe if you can practice that in big ways and little ways, it starts to set that foundation, that groundwork, just like situational awareness, so that when the 3% kicks in, you have that as a tool. Now, again, I don't know. There's not a lot of research out there, and I haven't gotten that far. My hope is also, again, boy, we set these, these pieces in place, then if, you know, and even if it's not the trauma of a sudden flood that take, tears the house down, but it's the trauma of a constant leak over years and years and years, on the outside, uh, on the other side of all of this work, um, if there is that trauma there, that the, the pieces in place for mindfulness can help them address that. Yeah, I, I think this it sounds like something that, that the world needs. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you and your graduate student are doing this. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot more to talk about on this topic. Um, as your research continues to evolve and 
you know, you get out there and practice and, and can tell us what's happening and, and are there ways that we can bring this into school settings and to diffuse situations there and into the workforce. Um, so I'm thrilled that you all are doing this, Richard, and I'd like to thank you for your time today. Any last thoughts? Oh, no, thank you very much. This was, uh, it was wonderful to sit down and talk with you all. And, um, and again, for me, this just furthers that goal of letting everyone know what research is out there and also the passions that I have. This has been Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at George Southern University. The opinions expressed here are those of the researchers and the host and not of Georgia Southern University or the University System of Georgia. We would like to give a shout out to Purple Planet for our bumper music. Join us next time for Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars.